is supported by Filling the Well, a new podcast from Arts Midwest created to nourish, provoke, and inspire artists and arts leaders. In this five-part series, hear from creative changemakers as they share their takes on how to shift power dynamics, avoid burnout, build authentic community, share resources, and advocate for support. With each episode, you'll find links to explore these ideas further and act in your community. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or check out artsmidwest.org slash filling the well. Welcome to Nonprofit Lowdown. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. Hey, podcast listeners, Rhea Wong with you once again. So this must mean it's Nonprofit Lowdown. Today, I am super excited. We are going to talk about disrupting philanthropy. And actually, this is a continuation of a conversation that I started with my guests. So I would love to welcome to the show Stella Billings, Santana Moreno, and George Suttles, who will tell us each about themselves and their history of philanthropy and their careers before we get into the juicy details of disrupting philanthropy. So let's just start one at a time. Stella, Santana, George, give us a quick thumbnail sketch of who are you and about your experience in fundraising. Hi, it's lovely to see everybody. My name is Stella Billings. I use she, her pronouns. I'm in New York City and I've been fundraising in New York coming on 15 years, largely on the institutional side. And I work with large multi-service like human service organizations that are doing direct work on the ground. And what I hope to do in those sort of situations and what I am really committed to is building out the practice of fundraising as a pathway to a different way of looking at success and a pathway to a different way of partnering and defining our work in communities and as a practice of accountable gatekeeping. So that's me. Awesome. Thanks. Santana. Hey, y'all. My name is Santana Moreno. I use they, them, theirs pronouns. I'm the Director of Development at Funders for Reproductive Equity, which is a philanthropic serving organization that supports and organizes philanthropy to support the reproductive health rights and justice movements globally. Prior to that, I was the Senior Manager of Philanthropic Partnerships at Jobs with Justice, which is a workers' rights org. And I was at the National Latina Institute for Reproductive Justice before that, which uh, it's in the name. <laughs> and prior of that was at National LGBT Chamber of Commerce. So I'm very invested in social change fundraising, like Stella very heavily on the institutional side. And um, I've developed my own theory of change around it that I'll probably touch more on in our conversation. So it's great to be here today. Love the theory of change. We will definitely get to that. And last but not least, our bon vivant man about town, George Suttles. Second time guest here on the pod. George, tell us about yourself. Hey, everybody. Uh, George Suttles. I use uh, he, him pronouns. I'm currently the executive director of the Common Fund Institute, which is the research and practice arm of Common Fund, an asset management firm in the endowment space. I'm a board member, institutional fundraiser, as well as take pride in being able to activate my network to fundraise for causes and nonprofits that I care about deeply. And I'm also a philanthropy geek from an academic standpoint. And so really, really interested in sort of how we activate donors of color and donors from different communities outside of the mainstream to uh, support and underwrite movement building. So have participated in a lot of research collaboratives that focus on that. So happy to be here with you. Thanks. Awesome. Okay. So the title of this particular gathering today is Disrupting Philanthropy. I think the word disrupt is kind of overused, but let's dig into the specifics here. George, maybe we'll start with you because you sort of referenced it. In your mind, what is it that we need to start thinking about disrupting in philanthropy and in fundraising? Thanks for that, Ria. I think part of it is sort of the realization that we are active participants in philanthropy, 
that we're connected to generosity and giving and altruism culturally and spiritually, and that philanthropy isn't just sort of old white men sprinkling their largesse on the rest of us, is that we're actively participating and exploring sort of our own ability to be philanthropic and support organizations we care about. And so I think once we sort of fully embrace our own capacity and abilities as philanthropists, then that's part of the quote unquote disruption is that we can do a lot of this work on our own and that we have capacity and infrastructure and our own theories of change, as Santana said. So we're experts in this in our own right. So we're not passively asking others to underwrite work we really care about. We are sort of offering invitations. And so I'm really, really interested and keen on sort of exploring that. So. Yeah, thanks for that, George. There seems to me kind of in what you said, this unspoken conversation that we need to have about power. Who has it? Who controls it? Who is the decision maker and how does it flow? Still, I see you nodding, so we'll, we'll call on you and then Santana, I'd love for you to share your framework. Absolutely. I think that one of the things that motivates me the most and challenges me the most around this issue of disruption is very much around power. So much of the time, fundraisers have enormous power in organizations. We're the folks who are telling the story of that work in the world in a lot of different audiences. And it's not just in orientation to donors. It's not just in orientation to attendees or something like that. But as fundraisers, we're weaving a narrative in a way that can either amplify and represent and uplift the work that we're doing and work on a narrative of shared power that feels really vital and that can get us where we're going. Or we can do that narrative and say that it's in the service of external expectations or it's in the service of, I sometimes find to be like a problematic success narrative. We're cleansing that narrative for an organization. And so when I'm thinking about disruption, it's very much that idea of how are we using the role of fundraisers in order to rebalance power? and to invert some of those structures. And what does that mean for us? And how are we kind of needing to go against what we've been trained for for a really long time? Because we're trained very much to represent and package the work that we're doing in communities or movements in a way that feels palatable. Using that power oppositely to amplify is new and can be really exciting. You heard about Santana's theory of change too. <laughs> yeah, Santana, drop this theory of change because I think there's something so powerful in thinking about changing that power dynamic and making mm -hmm. it about invitation versus like being a supplicant, but please. Sure. The people that know me in this field and it, all of you all will know me for this. Like I've developed my own theory of change over the years shaped by my experiences and what I've seen both the strengths and weaknesses in philanthropy. My theory of change is basically that I want to be part of a movement to both reclaim and redirect reparative aligned resources toward progressive organizations that serve and uplift communities living at the margins. Like that's like if it was a mission statement, that is it. From my vantage point, however, like I specifically work with foundations and as many foundations that have made a lot of great improvements in recent years, it really hasn't scratched the surface with what they're capable of and private foundations, especially to me, just the one piece of that philanthropy pie that are the most easily capable of doing a lot more and with less of an uphill battle to make that change happen because a lot of them have already been doing it and have shown what they can doubling payouts or just like completely disrupting how their boards and staff look. Like to me, it's the most easy platform to try to disrupt in a meaningful way. And besides that, a direct piece about how the work is done, I also believe strongly because I am part of it, like being part of a movement to increase authentic representation on both sides 
of the fundraising relationship. So making sure there are more fundraisers that authentically represent the communities that our organizations claim to advocate for, whether that's BIPOC, queer, transgender, non-conforming, immigrant, low-income background. There are so many communities that our organizations advocate for that are not represented at all at the fundraising table. And that seems like a very important piece that is often overlooked in the broader conversation of how our movements work. Yeah. Thank you for that. I'm going to just open up a whole can and we can all jump in. But one thing that I've really been thinking about of late is the community-centric fundraising model, which I think a lot of us are familiar with. If you're not familiar with it, definitely check it out online. And there are principles that really are explicit about shifting us from like the donor-centric culture, or like the supplicant culture, the white savior complex culture of philanthropy into a much more community-centric model. Curious though, if you all have seen any examples of how this plays out in real life, because to me, as I'm reading it, it sounds good in theory, but I just haven't seen it in practice as yet. So curious about that. Santana, why don't we start with you? Yeah, I'm very interested and intrigued by a lot of these new schools of thought that have been burgeoning, whether we adopt them or not. Like it's important to know that they exist and to interrogate what they're saying. And I think one of the pieces in community-centric, so yeah, they have their own new like code of ethics, which is, I guess, like a separate standard from like AFP's code of ethics. And one of them is talking about fundraising as a community versus fundraising for your organization, which is very interesting. And it makes me think of one very specific example of something I did years ago. At one of my past organizations, we had a very robust funder portfolio, and I'm not going to say the org because I'm just not, <laughs> but almost all of the funding was completely aligned with our mission. But there was one grant that as soon as I started from day one, I was like, what is this? Why do we have this? And it was funding from an LGBTQ rights funder, a very famous LGBTQ rights funder. And the funding was specifically and mentioned very in no uncertain terms, it was for queer rights and advocacy. And I was pretty sure that we weren't doing any of that when I first started, but I was like, okay, maybe I'm just missing something. Like, I'll, I'll see. As I was there for those first six months, I just kept affirming, <laughs> like with each passing week, we were not doing this. And when I read the most recent report that we sent out, it was grabbing at so many straws to rationalize the funding. And I had such a huge issue with that personally. And it happened to intersect with us doing this training with Roadmap Consulting, brilliant, amazing consulting firm for social change organizations. And through their weathering the storm, like framework, they talked about, all the potential ways social justice groups are threatened and attacked by really smart and crafty agents on the right. And one of the most successful ways is they really dig into the details of some groups funding to find holes and to just jeopardize funding and just disrupt reputations and just really cause a S word show. It felt dangerous for us and it was also wrong to me. I had no positional power, I was new, but we were also a power building organization and it felt like I was standing in my power as a queer person and standing like for us resourcing the movement, like it felt like I needed to say something. So I did, I wrote a really long memo talking about how it felt like we were actively taking this opportunity, this funding opportunity away from an organization that deserved it more and we were jeopardizing our organization 
to potentially put it like if someone decided to write a think piece on that organization like look at this <laughs> this big organization taking this funding away from small queer groups that could have been terrible so i spoke up i made a case i spoke to all of the people in power that i needed to and they agreed with me in the end and that feels like community-centric fundraising to me because i wasn't primarily centering the almighty dollar for our organization for me i was thinking about resource organizing as a movement and the communities that we were supporting. Like it wasn't a specifically queer rights organization, but we wanted to ally ourselves with them. And to be true allies, we can't actively take scarce resources. And I think community-centric fundraising specifically talks about resource scarcity and like pulling ourselves out of that mindset. So it was a difficult decision. Like we needed to make a decision to either invest deeper into that programming area to warrant the funding or move away from the opportunity overall. And ultimately we did move away from that opportunity overall. And it was a smart choice because we were only getting that funding because of a personal relationship. Yeah. So yeah, that's one example. <laughs> Thanks so much, Antana. So a couple of things that you mentioned, that I just want to pull out in Stella, George, please, I'd love your perspective on this is really switching this paradigm around scarcity and this belief that there's only so much and that we have to scramble to get ours. And this notion of something about power sharing and partnership, like partnership versus competition and thinking differently about the levers of power and having it be a zero sum game. So I think that feels as hopefully as a species, we start to develop some collective consciousness about our interdependence. I hope that that's where we're going, but I'm curious about your reaction to that or are there any examples that you've seen? I think what comes to mind for what you were just asking, Rio, is around, sometimes it's a question of like, what is our lane in our particular organizations? So I speak from a perspective, for instance, of working in some larger places. So right now I'm the vice president of institutional advancement at Safe Horizon, and we're an anti-violence organization in New York City. And we're a big place. We work in partnership with a lot of organizations, but we also have a big footprint within that work within the particular city. And so sometimes the role of really taking on community-centric fundraising and looking at scarcity and looking at power in that circumstance is around saying, as a large organization that has credibility and that has history and that has some clout, what are the risks that are ours to take? Because that's our labor as a large and generally well-resourced and kind of recognized place. And what are the things that we really have a responsibility to do so that we can carry this collective work forward? So for instance, are there things that our funders are doing or perpetuating or asking for that are actually not helping survivors? Like they're not where we need to be at. Who's able to push back on that? Who's able to say, we want to take a risk and try something different? Or this thing that is your typical way of supporting communities it's actually not working for us. And so thinking about, are there things, from my perspective, working in larger organizations, are there things that are ours to take on? And how can we do that in a way that explicitly centers a movement and not our own particular priorities, grant deliverables, things like that? And so I think that when we're thinking about disruption, we're thinking about community-centered fundraising, when I'm using that hat of either working in or also doing consulting with other organizations that are on the ground, it's about saying, what's our lane in this movement? What's our labor to do so that we can hold and lift other folks up? What are the ways very practically that that's going to happen? It may happen in a particular conversation where we say, we need them to know this thing, and we're going to say it out loud. It may happen in our 
being able and being practiced at saying no. And I think, Santana, I was really inspired by the story that you were sharing. And I think all of us need to get pretty used to saying no. Either no, this is not our funding and our resource to take. This is not our work in the world. Or no, we feel like there's something wrong here. There's a cost here. We're not willing to do this or be in this kind of partnership. And so when we balance those very practical kind of steps where we can build those practices, along with having a pretty good guide in terms of how are we best situated to promote a movement here? And what would that mean to be in accountability with other folks in community? Then I think we can start tilting towards some of those community-centric fundraising practices. I love that so much. I mean, what's landing for me, Stella, is this idea of power sharing and asking people what their role is, to your point, and being brave enough to claim it. And then also coming from a place of abundance and realizing that if you say no to funding, it's not the last funding you're ever going to get. And I think so much of what is exhausting about the field is this scarcity mindset of desperation. Like we can't be expansive if we're feeling desperate for money. George, curious about your thoughts. I think what another goal of ours should be for our friends and partners who are in the fundraising seat, who are doing this work so expertly, is to make their ability to say no to funding that might compromise the movement and the mission easy. And that's building alternative philanthropic infrastructure that's 100% values aligned, that's easy to access and that shifts and right-sizes the participation in a way that allows us to all advance the work we all care about. So I'm also interested in us building those alternative infrastructure bits. It's motivating and organizing high net worth people of color who have benefited directly from movement building, who quote unquote get it, who are ready to unlock resources that's seen as mainstream philanthropy. So that's infrastructure that I'm interested in in thinking about building. Also, we talked about this when we were on the panel at the nonprofit New York situation. What if organizations built ecosystems of generosity and resource sharing, where if someone in our ecosystem needed to say no to a particular type of problematic grant opportunity, the ecosystem would take care of them and say, right, that is problematic. We have money in our organizational and operational coffers. We will cover support and flank you until you can find another opportunity because the work you do in our ecosystem is complementary and equally as important. So that's the transformation and disruption that we've talked about that I just want to make sure that we uplift. It's interrogating and influencing institutional philanthropy as currently constructed, and then constructing our own infrastructure and our own philanthropic communities so that when the no needs to be said, it's easy. Like I want Stella and Santana to be saying no a lot all the time if they have to. I want them to know in the back of their minds that no can roll off their tongue because they've got another community that's going to take care of them. And then when we get to the city on the hill, foundations as currently organized will be the last resort. We'll go to them in phase five after everything else has been taken care of and we've supported our own. Those are the disruptive thoughts that were going on in my mind. I love that. Stella, you had a response. 
I completely love that too. And George, it's just making me think, I think that we talked about this a little bit the last time the four of us got together of the idea of fundraising as organizing and fundraising really as a powerful tool and practice of community organizing. And if we're in a space where we think as fundraisers, we're organizers for our movement or our communities, then the way that we think about ourselves and our role and our accountability is totally different. The way that we think about where we're moving to is totally different and how we need to keep taking those steps forward, practicing saying no, feeling like we have this sense of collectivity. So when I feel like we're really getting somewhere with fundraising, it's because I can see those practices of relationships, of network, of invitations, of mutual support, of mutual curiosity, and of sort of real and frank truth-telling. Like I can see all of those organizing principles playing out in how we're leading the possibilities of our different organizations. So I think that the extent to which we can all really lean on this role of being organizers in this work can help to shift from a you to a we in pretty important ways. Oh, I love it. A you to a we. A phrase that's coming up for me too is valuing our value. Because I think so often in nonprofit, we're so quick to undervalue the value we're creating in the world which then makes it easy for other people, funders to undervalue what we do. So we're like, well, it actually costs X to do it, but I can do it for Y. I can push the pennies together and make them scream and do this cheaper. And I think for, to your point, if we actually created some infrastructure around this, we would actually, first of all, ask for what we need to get the work done in a sustainable way and also make it easy to say no. Santana, I know you're nodding your head. I'm wondering if you have a response. No, this is great. It's reminding me of our nonprofit New York conversation just because that was so fun. It actually immediately makes me think of something we did at my last organization. So I worked at Jobs with Justice, which for the workers' rights movement, like truly the leader of the workers' rights movement is known, but it's the OSFs and the Fords of the world that like look to us for like how to shape that worker organizing nationally because we work, I say we, I just left that job a month ago, <laughs> but because we worked with grassroots groups on the ground. So after the pandemic started, we started this national campaign because like we're talking to these grassroots groups that are desperate and need funding that aren't in our network, but need funding, do not have access to Ford, do not have access to us, OSF, do not have access to these funders that want to support grassroots groups, but they themselves also don't know how. So we created the Always Essential campaign, which literally just existed to be a platform for us to funnel resources to organizations that would never be in conversation with these funders. I mean, that's not new. Like, that's how a lot of campaigns have worked. But it was really groundbreaking for the time because we funneled these resources incredibly fast to groups that needed it that had, some of them had less than like 50K budgets. We would double their budget just because of this funding that these giant funders funneled toward us because they knew we were those third-party validators. We were the ones that were ultimately responsible, but we also knew the communities better than these program officers ever would. So that was such a big example to us of, wow, like this was really transformative for us. We sent out 90% of this three and a half million dollar collaborative fund, basically. And it was work that had the funders just teamed up themselves never would have been able to happen. So that was an example of us being like, we need to remodel this many more times. And I don't know if the campaign is known yet, so I'm not going to say, but there's another campaign that they're working on right now to do exactly that. And the philanthropy 
philanthropy has been so inspired by it, it's becoming this new thing that they're trying to do for rapid resources to these grassroots groups that they could never have access to themselves. So that is an example of this big organization that has the capability to share power, share resources without thinking in scarcity. Like it supported us, it supported the communities we were centering and it was ultimately exactly what we needed, what the communities needed, and what I hope to see remodeled a lot more as these movement organizations are thinking more about collaboration and resources. Santana, there's so much there to unpack, but there's something that I just wanted mm-hmm. to share with the audience that I've been thinking a lot about, which is I think in life in general, as people, but certainly as nonprofit organizations, we chase the money. And we're thinking always about chasing the money. But instead, if we actually changed our perspective to think about expansion, how do I expand the power? How do I expand the pie? How do I expand resources? I think the money will find you because I think the lie that we all believe is that there's a finite amount of money in the world. There is an infinite amount of money in the world. There's more money than anybody could ever need. We just have to believe in the value of the value that we create and the ways in which we're creating expansion for others. Curious though, what are other tangible ways that we as individuals can develop and support these practices of disruption and expansion and getting out of the zero sum scarcity mindset game? George, can I start with you? Yeah, sure. I think first and foremost is be generous, be philanthropic in your own life and working with sort of high net worth individuals of color and understanding the psychology around money. You'd be surprised for a lot of folks, there's a scarcity mindset even for those who have large assets just given their background. And so, as I mentioned earlier, every single one of us can be, we're all philanthropists. We all can practice generosity. We all can figure out in our own ways what we have to give and be cheerful givers and stewards. And so what does it look like for all of us to sort of grapple with that scarcity mindset when it comes to our own personal philanthropy and just be active vocal givers, especially when we're giving to causes that we care about and that are sort of focused on social justice. So I know for me, that's what I try to do. I'm not a rich man, but I try to give, let people know who I give to and why, and the importance of why I give because I'm directly impacted by a lot of the work that I support. And so I think the more of us that are active philanthropists and vocal around causes we care about, the better. So that would be sort of one tangible way that I'm thinking about. Yeah. And just to piggyback onto that, and then we'll go to Stella and Santana on this is money is energy. And so if you're hoarding and if you get into this mindset of like, I just got to take care of mine first, then I can give, you're blocking that energy and that flow of money. So I love what you said. Stella, Santana, reactions to George's point? Sure. I was thinking about it from the seat again of being a fundraiser. And so often being in this place of describing, of laying out budgets, of doing these kind of plans for the work that we want to do. And something that I often want to do myself and think is really important for all of those of us who are doing that kind of work on a practical level is like remembering that the way that we're funded, and I'm specifically speaking to human service organizations because those are where my heart is a lot of the time. The way that we are funded is such a trap and it was designed to be a trap. Human service organizations and a lot of the nonprofits as we know them are created as tools of privatized social good so that these services don't have to be given by government, for instance. 
And that doesn't mean that we also don't do deep and incredible work, because we do. But let's remember that some of the reasons that we're funded, that we are structured, that our 501c3s work and allow for certain things and do not allow for other things, is actually to invest in the transactional services of the work and to disinvest and to silo off the movement and organizing of the work. So we need to be aware of what that trap is. That means that there is inherent racism, there is inherent misogynoir that goes into the very way that our organizations are funded and where funding flows because this is something that says there is only part of this work that is of value. There's only part of this work that we're going to pay for and you have to beg for that or you have to cut it out. And so to do really powerful work in reframing that, and I'm talking with public systems, I'm talking with private philanthropy, with institutions, anything like that, you have to be able to say, here's the totality of who we are and what we're working with. And we're no longer going to describe it that all we need is a dollar to do this one hour of service and check a box because that harms the work. It harms the mission. It's a way that money has often flowed to the social sector, especially in the last 40 years, that has a very definite purpose and a very definite and demobilizing and disorganizing impact. Woo! That's like a PhD level comment. I am loving it. Sandana, your thoughts. And then I have one last question and then we're going to open it up for the audience. Sure. I like that you started this convo, Ria, bringing out one of those emerging schools of thought, like right at the gate, community-centric fundraising. So I touched on some of this earlier, but to expand and be more explicit, like CCF's framework is visionary and progressive, but the way I feel about any proposed set of rules or codes, I think we as fundraisers need to intentionally shape our own theories of change, our own codes of ethics, our own standards and practices. So adopting some of these new schools of thought, their beliefs or not, a lot of the fundraising I do would not be successful if I holistically adopted every single principle they set out on CCF's website, but I think that's fine. I don't subscribe to any singular rule book because I've made my own rule book. There are principles of donor-centered fundraising that have served our field well for generations, but there are obviously standards and practices within standard fundraising that I completely disagree with. Some I just don't feel is my style, and it's very similar to CCF. No one is telling you or maybe they are. I'm telling you <laughs> that you don't have to subscribe to all of their messaging and approaches, but I think it is our responsibility to know what they are, to develop our own thought leadership, and because that's really what our field needs, people that have intentionally thought, okay, what, how do I want to do this work? Not just the rule book that Hank Rosso gave me or the fundraising school or whoever, like what are my standards and practices? In our last conversation for Nonprofit New York, we talked about that messy middle. That is so important right now when we're in that messy middle. Like, we, I'm not in the Hank Rosso school. I'm not in CCF school. I'm in that messy middle. And I, so because of that, I need to develop my own ways of doing things as we keep aiming for that deeper transformation in the future. That's a really good segue. And I'll let you all think about this for a second. What advice would you give to your little baby cells? Like all those fundraisers out there, aspiring fundraisers listening to this, what would you tell them as they embark on their career? I think two things come to mind. One for my little baby self is to immediately go out there and build deep and authentic relationships with the work. 
And so that may be be involved in what this work is on the ground, really understand it, spend time. It may be realize that your people are going to be the folks who are doing this on the ground, who are the program people. Like there can't be a silo of fundraising and the rest of our work in organizations. And that's one of the most critical things. I think it's also one of the most critical ways that we've fallen down sometimes as a profession, especially for folks like me. You know, I'm a white woman. I look like a very typical fundraiser and I can do and I have and my people have done a lot of harm and a lot of separation because of how we approach that work and because of the way that we can be distanced from it. So one thing is build deep and authentic relationship and really be able to be in that in a personal way. The other thing that I would say is because so much of fundraising is about storytelling, figure out what that story is before you ever start writing anything, saying anything, taking that meeting, having that conversation. Not what is the story that'll get the grant and not what is the story we've always told or the thing that feels like it would answer the grant questions best, but spend real time saying, what is it in this work that we do and that we're proud of and that we want in the world? And how are we going to make that what we're measured on? How are we going to kind of flip over success in that particular way? Because I think that there is a way that traditionally we go in and we write towards the funding. And instead, if we can really take power of saying what matters about this work, even if it's not the obvious thing, even if it's not that linear trajectory of success, everybody suddenly was middle class in the US, what's the real story of what we do? And then stick to that and never waver. So good. Santana? Goodness, young me. When I think about what I want for young fundraisers entering this field right now, find your people. Like when I think to the early days of me doing this, it's a miracle I stuck it out. <laughs> like when I first started, I didn't have a community of folks to talk to about this. Folks that got it and especially being Black and queer. I remember feeling crazy when macro aggressions would happen to me and I was so isolated and I had no one to talk to. But it's so different today. Like what's great about today is that there are so many options for communities to join, whether that's not professionals in general or BIPOC professionals or queer. Like there's so much intentional community creation happening right now on LinkedIn and just all over, like find your people. And especially LinkedIn, like I love LinkedIn. You can reach out to whoever you want. Like that is the norm for LinkedIn. If there's someone that inspires you or someone you want to talk to, someone you see is your same age that you want to get to know, and they seem like a similar background or a similar path, just reach out to them and start making those circles because you will be so surprised how those people end up being your tribe, your community that sustains you when those crazy donor meetings happen that drive you up the wall. Find your people. Gracia. <laughs> George. Okay, Stella and Santana are hard acts to follow. I got this. So just bear with me as I try to unpack all of these thoughts in my mind. I think especially for professional fundraisers who have really committed to this as their profession, what I would say to the younger version of their selves is you are stewards, and we talked about this in our last, stewards of what many community organizers and climate justice advocates call a just transition and that we need to recognize and elevate fundraisers as the holders of that multidimensionality, is that there's a lot going on, the messiness is complex, and those that are offering the invitations to partners are the ones who understand how all of that works. And so we need to make sure that 
our fundraisers are well-resourced, have a seat at the strategic table at the highest level, and that they understand that this stewardship piece is vitally important. So you're not just writing grant proposals and having coffee with donors, is that the stewardship piece is the elevated framework that I want our young fundraisers to take on. And I also want them to understand that we are in a transitional space and that they play a vital role in shepherding that, shepherding us into the just part of that transition. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's such a good point, George. Maybe like I'm old now, but I think that patience, what you get as you get older, but I remember being 20 something year old fundraiser and ready to burn it down. I want to burn it down right now. <laughs> so question coming in from Marcus. Marcus, do you want to jump in here and ask? Great question. Yeah, absolutely. So comment in question, if you allow me, really appreciate y'all's insights. I am one of many organizers in the community-centric fundraising movement. And so I would really encourage y'all, if y'all are really interested in this, to go to the website, communitycentricfundraising.org, check out the principles, which are less rules, but more like guiding thoughts that are developed by fundraisers of color in concert with other fundraisers of color. My question is, looking at the kind of larger policy and systems change part of this, what do y'all think about policies like the ASAC that's currently being debated and other types of policies that would move the needle on the philanthropy side that says that you have to do fundraising a different type of way? And how do you think that fits into this larger discussion of shifting fundraising and philanthropy? Marcus, could you give us a little bit of detail about the specifics of the policy? Yeah, absolutely. So the Accelerate Charitable Expenditures Act does a couple of different things. I think the main thing that's been debated is that it increases the payout from foundations that they have to give out. So currently, I believe it's 5% and it increases that. Different versions of the bill offer different types of incentives to increase your funding. For example, if you're a DAF, if you want to give out beyond 15 years and you get tax credits, if you spend out within 15 years, then you immediately get tax benefits. So things like that, that both force and incentivize more giving in the shorter term. Yeah. Thank you, Marcus. I'll just jump right in. So I actually wrote an article for Association of Fundraising Professionals a year ago where I touched on, like at that point, the legislation didn't have a name, but I touched on the call to double foundation payouts and to do it uh, through legislative change. I absolutely support it and I advocate for it. And what's interesting about this growing movement, this conversation is so important and some foundations have done it themselves and have taken that onus, but it needs more than just individual promises and pledges to do that. The Council of on Foundations, I think, after this started to become a big policy issue, they wrote an incredibly in-depth like retort saying, don't do it. We don't support it. We think it's the worst thing you could possibly do for philanthropy. But obviously the Council on Foundations also represents a lot of like the breadth of foundations, like a lot of conservative leaning funders. So the point is that for it to move us away from the scarcity mindset. And I support that kind of legislative change because like even just from a almost pedestrian way of seeing it, if a foundation doubled their payouts, would that mean that some foundations that had historically not said we can't possibly fund national and local groups, you now have no excuse whatsoever. It's like, well, you literally have a double capacity to be able to resource grass tops and grassroots. I think that kind of systemic legislative change is necessary. And it's necessary for like large nonprofits to insert ourselves into that conversation because we have the policy shops to do that. 
like we have the national relationships in Congress to make those kind of lobbying pushes to help our grassroots siblings in arms. The other pieces of the act I'm not as familiar with because I don't do individual giving, but I am very supportive of policy change to increase foundation payouts because we've seen like that is literal wealth hoarding (laughs) and it's unnecessary wealth hoarding, especially given the unprecedented wealth endowment increases that happened under COVID-19. Any last thoughts, Stella, George? Yeah, that's a really good point. So I'm a firm believer that sort of as fundraisers, organizers, and activists, we have to be following and monitoring sort of policies at the, especially at the federal level that impact giving and impact payout. But if you think about it, and so this is coming from somebody who works at an investment management firm, is that when I think about the 5% IRS minimum payout for foundations, that was always skimpy. So to double down on skimpy seems disingenuous from a policy standpoint, that's one. And two, and Santana alluded to this, the market value of endowments skyrocketed over the last two and a half years. So in some ways, when I read the policy and I understand investment management, I'm like, I scoffed a little bit because I'm like, well, wait a second. Not only did foundation largesses expand exponentially from a market value standpoint, you're just asking us to double to accelerate and double down on payout that was skimpy and was never focused on the strategic deployment of resources for communities anyway. And so I want the yes, both. I want the vigorous, aggressive monitoring of these types of policies. And then I want the aspirational thought leadership around what would it look like to, for example, incrementally liquidate foundation endowments and have hundreds of billions of dollars flow directly to communities in a matter of months. So like, I want my cake and eat it too. I want to be able to sort of zero in on those policies and then also imagine what it would look like to really think transformationally around sort of unlocking some of these resources. Okay, I think we have one time for one last question. Hi, George, when you were mentioning the Just Transitions framework, I really like that framework, but then I'm really curious about what the, I understand that to mean that we're sort of in this intermediate position where there's like lots of bad practice, but we have to put up with it, but we're working towards like sort of a better world. And I'm curious about what that world we're working towards is. Like, what are we transitioning into? Is it like less skimpy payouts? So lots of generous payouts from these private foundations. Is it just a lot more community-centered fundraising? Or is it to what something Stella said earlier? Is it about government not offloading all the services to nonprofits to provide, but actually providing those services? So not privatizing both services and fundraising? Sorry, it's a big question. I'm just curious about, in general, what the thing that you're envisioning is. The short answer is yes. (laughs) All of those things that you listed and more. If I had a concrete answer, I'd be running all the things. But we know there are better ways to do things. We have dreams and aspirations. And when we think about a just transition, it's more of an encouragement to us, for us to use our full imagination around sort of what a better way of doing these things would look like. And so we'll all co-create what that transition looks like. I have ideas, Stella has ideas, you have ideas, Chitras, Santana has ideas, Ria has ideas. So the hope is that we could achieve all of those things and more, but we know some of these systems are broken because we also see it in our programmatic work, not just as fundraisers, but the organizations we support. We're trying to get to a vision of what a better world would look like for survivors, for LGBTQ plus communities. And so we're working towards all of those things, but we're also co-creating what that what the vision of the future is. So I just say, yes, you named all of those great things. I want all of that and more, you know? Yeah. So. 
<laughs> so it looks like you had something to say and then we'll and then we'll wrap it up. Then just briefly, I'd say when I think about like, what is that transition and where are we moving towards? Let's make sure to hold the sort of like big dreaming and purpose of where we're going. Part of what we'd like to transition to in funders increasing their payouts to something that's meaningful in all of our work is a world in which things are better. Like we want to go towards a transition to where some of this money has done its work, to where some of our organizations have done their work. When sometimes people talk about budgets being moral documents, and I think that's a great phrase and it's always in my head a lot. And in the same way, structures that we're investing in through foundation payouts or through the kind of just transition systems that we're developing, those are investments that are showing us to where we want to go. And so sometimes we need to do that kind of massive investment or massive change, not just to get to a different way of addressing these different things, but actually because we're going to move the needle. We need to be able to envision that time where things are different for people and that money, we're not trying to set up a generational system where philanthropy can exist in perpetuity. We're trying to set something up where folks have what they need and those philanthropic resources did their work and can leave. Beautiful. All right. Y'all, we could talk about this forever, but we're coming up on time. So last fun question, and I'm going to make sure to put your LinkedIn's in the show notes, if that's okay for folks to connect with you. Last question. If you had a billboard and you could put anything on it to send a message out to the world, you know, metaphorically, what would be on the billboard? Santana, I'm going to start with you. Goodness. If I had a billboard. I love vision boards and artivism in general. And I have this literally in front of me, hang up on my wall, my four personal, like moral virtues, gratitude, love, resilience, and justice. That's what I would put on a board. Like the four things that drive me every single day. Gratitude, love, justice, and resilience. Love it. George? Yeah, I think on my billboard, and I alluded to this, use your imagination. Like everything that's swirling about around us now in terms of structures and institutions, does it have to be this way? Maybe the answer is yes, but maybe the answer is no. And so what's the alternative? So I just would encourage all of us to use our collective imagination to dream about what's out there for us and how we can sort of interact with each other differently. I love it. Co-creating a new reality. Last but not least, Stella, what's on your billboard? I think I would put on the billboard, find your lane and do the work. Figure out what it is that is specifically yours as a fundraiser, as an organization, as a community member that you can do most in the world to contribute to where we're doing. And then figure out like, here is that work. Let us do it. Love it. Love it. Friends, George, Santana, Stella, always fun. We have to maybe do a part three in a couple months because I always find this to be so enlightening for me personally and just a lot of fun. But thank you all. Thank you all for being here and have a wonderful week. Bye, everyone.